Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 66th episode of the Truth Island podcast. When we evaluate reality, there are two separate ways that we can make sense of the world around us. One way, which is probably the default setting as humans, is to see the world through a qualitative lens, through the experiences we've had, the people we've talked to, and the personal observations that we've made or taken note of. Our experiences often serve us well and typically unlock the doors to understanding not only of our own world, but the world that surrounds us. However, more recently, starting with the invention of the scientific method, quantitative reasoning has started to play an ever-increasing role in our decision-making. For example, if you've heard someone say something such as, studies show that brushing your teeth twice a day prevents cavities, You've just heard a quantitative technique being used to prove a point or a universal truth to someone else. And in more recent decades, schools and universities have trained us to view with greater suspicion people who preface most of their knowledge with mostly I statements. For example, if someone came up to you and said, I have a special diet where I only eat carbs and I lost 20 pounds, you'd probably scratch your head in suspicion and ask to see some data in order to determine if that is something that you yourself should actually try. As more and more and more of our decision-making now relies on within the quantitative realm, there is becoming less of a demand or acceptance for universal truths that are derived from one's lived experiences and more of an emphasis on what can be tabulated or calculated. But is this such a good thing? Accompanying me on this qualitative learning experience, I am joined once again with Alexander. Alex, is what we are doing a complete waste of time if we don't have any data in front of us? Nah, I would say that, you know. (laughs) Okay, podcast over. We've answered this. (laughs) Right. (laughs) the, the, The human experience is more complicated than just following quantitative data. And quite frankly, we don't even follow much quantitative data. Hmm. There's plenty of quantitative data that's pointing us into, you know, is pointing towards some pretty serious issues and we don't follow through with. But I think the essence of life really is qualitative as opposed to quantitative. You know, what kind of quality equity do we get out of our day-to-day existence? And I think decisions should be rooted around that first and foremost. It's nice to juxtapose emotional decision-making with quantitative statistics, but following just that is a very cold, harsh, apathetic road that I wouldn't want to to live down. Although I could probably argue lately, I've been really probably more leaning towards quantitative now that I really think about it. You know, I look at COVID cases, I look at population, I look at, you know, the the increased possibility of COVID-19 I look at those kinds of numbers now and I I come to conclusions, but at the end of the day, I do this in order to have the right quality in my decision-making. So I guess that's a very long-winded way of not answering your question. No, no. I mean, again, it's a discussion and and we're not going to necessarily find the answer to this right away, but you're right. I think context really, really, really matters, especially when we're talking about something such as COVID, because we all have, you know, our funny uncle in the family or, or aunt or, or, brother, older brother, whoever it is that says, yeah, I tried this and that totally worked. I, I look at me, I'm the, I'm the bill of health. And that's great. That's great that your qualitative experiences have shown you 
that this is a legitimate path and that works for you. But our bodies are all completely different. We, we all react to things in, in very different ways. And I think that's where we kind of need to lean more on our quantitative side, where it's like, great, I'm glad that you had that wonderful experience um, using, what's that medication called? Hydro... Um, the hydrochloroquine yeah there we go like that's great and maybe it maybe that qualitative experience like that's not to say that your experience with that medication is wrong it might be totally valid like you're you're not making it up your qualitative experience is valid and maybe that medication reacted to your particular body in such a way that it worked but that's where we kind of need to throw all of these anecdotes against the wall of data and see if it holds up for the the general population at large yeah, and it also comes down to what kind of scope are you looking, uh, what kind of measurement, what is the measurement and scope of what you're perceiving? Mm. Like classic example, you could look at an individual uh, molecule, right? And you see quantitatively defined that a certain number of molecules create a certain atom. A certain number of atoms create a certain type of mass. But when you zoom all the way out and not focus so much on the quantitative, you see that its pattern creates a sense of quality, the quality of the human body. So I think what we're doing is we're zooming too far into things that don't even necessarily matter. Like for me right now, my entire purpose, my entire focus on my purpose is what kind of quality life I am living. I had my entire life thrown upside down. So now I have the wonderful opportunity to take a moment and ask myself, what do I like? What, what are the qualities of my life that I like? How can I in, increase the quality of life? What changes can I hurl myself into to change the quality? I'm not focusing on the numbers. I'm not focusing on how many people are doing this, how many people are doing that. I think focusing too much on quantitative in that way really leaves too much room for the changing of your mind. And if I can make one message out to anyone listening to this, it would really just be define your quality. What kind of quality do you live through? What kind of foods do you eat? What kind of thoughts do you bring out into the world? How, how if you were to die tomorrow, like how would your life be lived? Um, quality is just, it's far more mysterious. It's less attainable. It's, it's unique. You know, it's, it's uncharacterized. So I think with life, big life choices, it's gotta be qualitative. Right. And we, we see all of this data, like most Americans will do this. Most Americans will do that. And that when it comes to big life choices about like how I want to live my life, that is the worst thing that you can possibly do because most people are afraid to actually critically examine what it is that they want out of life. They're actually afraid, Alexander, to actually say, who am I? What is it that I want? And they kind of use quantitative data to rationalize like, oh, well, this job over here pays a $90,000 a year or whatever it is, that puts me in line over here, or I'm just as good as that person and so forth. And all of their decision making is made on the quantitative le level of like, okay, as long as I fit into this group, as long as I fit into this, th this particular set of people, 
then therefore I am, I am happy. And you know what? People actually make that same choice when it even comes to something like food. They're like, well, um, I don't really like eating this food right now. Like I, I kind of find the taste to be very bland or it's not really my cup of tea, but everyone is shopping at this Whole Foods over here, right? Like everybody, right. everyone's telling me that this Whole Foods is a magical place where I will get organic, whatever vegetables and so forth. But maybe you're a dude that really likes like barbecue ribs or something. And, and, and it's like, it, it, it's like life is like the data is telling you, you need to be doing this, but then your qualitative experience is telling you something else. And there are times when we have to kind of make that decision of like, okay, do I want to follow my qualitative experience, what my qualitative experiences are telling me, or do I kind of want to follow the herd on this one? And it, it's not, it's not black and white. I think one interesting factor of quantitative thinking is really that's a uniquely human trait. I don't think necessarily the universe follows those guidelines. So that being said, I think that there is a threshold where common sense would tell you to follow a quantitative method, but it really comes down to some degree of faith when you're making these larger life decisions. I'm grateful for quantitative thinking. Mm. As, as the son of a scientist, you know, that's definitely been one thing drilled in our head is like, okay, well, let's think about this quote unquote rationally. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing that gets difficult with this is like, okay, let's say we are making a decision about exercise or caloric intake. I think quantitative data can help a great deal with that kind of stuff. And then we can like learn a lot more about how the body functions, learn about studies and diets, what diets work. Like, I think there was a diet um, back in the 2000s. I don't know if you remember this called the Atkins diet. Do you remember this or something? And, you know, like, thankfully, I think data came in and said, no, 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 that doesn't work. Or you're just losing water or, or so I'm not a scientist. I have no idea. But like, that's kind of like a moment where it was like, thank you, data. Thank you for just, you know, clearing that up. And I you know I haven't heard anyone say the word Atkins diet in quite some time. So something tells me, something tells me that science kind of took care of that and threw it in the basement. And then that's the end of that. Um, where it gets difficult is when we have values such as what is good. Right. And this is, this is like when we get into the really deep philosophical stuff is like, what is a good life or what is goodness? You can't have any quantitative data because quantitative data cannot tell you what is good because what is good to me and what is good for you are two separate things. And we might have completely different opinions as to what exactly is the good. And Psychology tries to do this with surveys and say, well, happiness surveys indicate that people who do this tend to live happier lives. And I'm like, that that's great and all. But I think that those people who are filling out those surveys, I'm questioning myself how thoroughly they've actually examined their own life. Ooh, that is so dense of uh, a thought pattern. What is good? And um, how would I define what is good? Well, Honestly, I don't know if I'm in a place where I can define what is good. At least in my life right now, I, things are so different. I'm more in a state of neutrality, reassessing what I think is now good and what was what I committed to before that may not necessarily be good anymore. So in terms of an individual, 
having the opportunity to be on the podcast, I feel like my words are a little hollow if I were to discuss what I think is good. But for the sake of content, I'm happy to try. I would say goodness really comes down to the sharing of something and the creation of an opportunity for another person without strings attached. So whatever choice you make that opens a door for someone else to decide whether he or she may or may not want to walk through, maybe that action has some element of goodness to it Hmm. to where you're not just detracting things. You're not purely consuming. You're also creating. I would say that that might be the simplest form of goodness I can come to today. No, and that, and that's fine. And, and I think that we all have, it's really hard to kind of buckle down. You know, we'd have to read some serious Plato and Aristotle to get to the the bottom of of the good (laughs) and so forth. And, and that might be for another episode, but I think that what is good for us as individuals varies to some considerable degree. And I think the more that you examine who it, who you are and what your core principles and core virtues are, that is going to actually shape the way that you define your life. And I'll give you a perfect example of this, right? Let's just say that we have a guy who's, let's just say, morbidly obese, okay? Mm. And you know, I, I think you and I kind of have like a, a fitness regimen that we, we sort of go through. And for us, that would not be considered a part of our definition of the good, right? Like, like, like to be out of shape or to whatever is not, is not a part of our canon of goodness. Whereas that person might just be like, Hey, I care about traveling. I care about having great dinners with people. I really love food and so forth. And for them, the goodness is, is, is prioritizing being social or prioritizing um, other things in their life. And for them, that is, is, is the good. Now, I would obviously get into a huge argument with this person and be like, listen, dude, you're, you're cutting your, your life short and so forth. And like, you're, you're jeopardizing mm-hmm. your health, but that's, that's, you know, that that's neither here or there. Right. And, and ultimately what is that guy going to probably tell me? He's going to tell me, screw you, man. Like that's your, your version of good and my version of good are two separate things. And it, 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 it's kind of like we, we could use quantitative data to explain why your lifestyle is bad. Like I could be like, Hey, the data shows that the, eating this chocolate cake right now is going to rot your teeth. It's going to cause cavities. Uh, it's going to cause you to be more susceptible to di- diabetes and all sorts of other harmful things. I can throw all the quantitative data I want at that person, mm-hmm. but ultimately they have their own definitions of good. And in their, in their value right. system, the chocolate cake is so powerful. Like that chocolate cake is so damn powerful that it's worth getting diabetes. It's worth getting all of these things. And, and I think even smokers kind of rationalize this in, in some way. They're, they're like, no, this cigarette is so damn good that it's worth <laughs> all of the risks associated with it. Yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head. What is it to the person? I mean, could you argue to Babe Ruth, hey, you eating all those hot dogs, having that coffee is bad for you. Would he yeah. be Babe Ruth if he didn't eat all that? I don't know. <laughs> and he chewed a lot of tobacco. I actually heard a story about Babe Ruth where he chewed a lot of tobacco and he got like some kind of gum, like some really kind of like cancer of the mouth, like disease. I, I, I don't know. I, it was either him or one of these other baseball players because chewing tobacco is like 10 times as worse as smoking a cigarette. So bad like, for you. Yeah, yeah. 
And quantitatively speaking, I've gotten sick 100% of the time I've tried chewing tobacco. So <laughs> You've done that before? I can say <laughs> my quality of life has increased since I've stopped doing that in high school. Wow, yes. wow. No, I, I've never I've never had the guts to chew tobacco. I'll be like... It's no. gross, man. Don't do it. <laughs> um, I think it's more for people to say they're tough enough to like do it. You know, and that's some kind you know, of weird thing. Now, this is what's interesting is that you might actually meet somebody who on their hierarchy of needs, being a tough man and chewing tobacco is so freaking important to them. Like chewing that tobacco and, and being a tough man, it reigns supreme in their values hierarchy that no matter how much data you throw at them, hey, look, man, you're, you're going to develop cancer of the mouth or something like that. If you keep chewing this, it doesn't really matter to them. And that's kind of like a qualitative decision that we have to make. I mean, let's take the election. It's going to be a hot topic. Quantitatively speaking, we're only 4 million difference. There's only a plus 4 million difference in ideology. So taking that into account, how should we value the opinions of our newly elected leaders, qualitatively speaking? If it was such high quality, wouldn't it be a, a wider spread? Exactly, exactly. And this is this is kind of where values come in. And the thing about quantitative methods is that when we have data that says, well, 95% of people die if they do this, or 95% of people have that, that's a lot more convincing. And it's a lot more, um, I, I guess we could say the robustness or the p-values. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, like we, we could get all technical or whatever. But basically, the higher percentage we have of affirmation of something, uh, the stronger it is. And that may not sway everybody. There may be that stubborn 5% that's like, no, I'm a part of the magic five that, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't follow this or whatever. But quantitative reasoning really falls on its face when you have like, well, 52% versus 48%, right? Like, like then right. all of that data science just gets thrown into the trash can because it's like, come on now, like, you know, a 2% or a 4% difference is really, that really makes something true. And like, that's the, that's the thing that's really complicated about reality is that if something is true by 51%, would you really walk down the street being like, yep, that's the absolute truth. It's 51% true. No, I wouldn't. I definitely would not. I would be asking myself how pigheaded are my ideas that they can't be resonating with a higher percentage. You know, that's like a really low bar. What kind of qualities need to be adjusted in order to, to reach that kind of audience? So in terms of a measurement, quantitative can be very useful, but there's something about the word quality that just whispers in my ear. And I just, I see people living in a certain way, not to make judgments, that I wish they had more of a qualitative approach towards what they do. And also, you know, I wish that on myself all the time. How could I improve my quality? There's just, it's, it's the only thing you can't reproduce is a sense of quality. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think that, you know, as I alluded to in my introduction, quality is what comes natural to us, right? Because, and this kind of harkens back to our our previous discussion about like, can you learn from someone else's experiences, right? And I think that the things that we see, hear, smell, and experience 
ring the truest to us. Like, and this is an absolute truth. Like you can read a bunch of stuff in a textbook and you'd be like, okay, I'll take that with a grain of salt or okay, that, that's definitely good to know. But if your life experience shows otherwise, like if your life experience points in an opposite set of conclusions, I guarantee you, no matter how much you like to look at data, when you're like, no, I've, I've actually brushed against this issue myself and I know it doesn't work that way, you're going to trust yourself and you're going to trust your gut beyond what any textbook says. And then that's just a natural human reflex. When you follow your qualities. I don't know how useful quantitative data will be in the future. Like I asked myself 100 years ago, how important was quantitative data? Far less important. Today, it's you know a monolith essentially. And then 150 years from now, 200 years from now, how important will quantitative thinking be? I would argue if Elon Musk succeeds in putting a computer in our brain, it's going to be more important. But if it doesn't, I would argue that it's a phase. Maybe this is a modern era. This is a phase of the modern era. It's our current metric system in terms of decision-making. And sometime down the road, there'll be a reformation in terms of how those ideologies are shaped in our brains. And we'll go back to the idea of quality. I think that at the very least, I think at the very least, right now, there's a disrespect in academia for qualitative thinkers. And I've had, you know, uh, professors, I've had other fellow graduate students, Aaron, if you don't have strong quantitative reasoning, strong, if you don't know R and Python at an advanced level, you will never get a job. Don't, don't even, you don't even, you dare like visiting um, homeless shelters and hospitals and collecting data through interviews. Don't even think about doing that. And that's, that's the way of Orwell. And that's the way of our, when we think of social scientists, like the first social scientists were not sitting there on R and Python. They were actually visiting poor communities and they were visiting the affluent mm -hmm. and they were visiting these various communities and having a journal. They had a journal and they were like, I spent a week here. I spent a month here. Here's what I saw. Here's what I noticed amongst the homeless population. And this, and the great sociologist and great early, early social scientists did this kind of work. And I kind of want to see a return to form. And, and I want to see, like, I don't want to get rid of my quantitative, you know, brothers and sisters. I love you guys. Like, I love that there's someone out there who can use R and Python all day and, and make miraculous regression studies. God bless you. However, I have a love and a respect for you. I want them to just respect us as well and say, hey, at the academic table, you have a place. It's a, you know, it could be 50-50, it could be 60-40. I don't know what the right balance is, but there needs to be a balance where you have qualitative minds and quantitative minds coming together and they each have a mutual respect for the quality, you know, for the work that they do. It'd be great if people resorted back to that. What is our Python? Those are uh, data science uh, softwares, basically. So like the way, the way it works is that you go onto a website like the US Census and they will give you this huge, I mean, just th think of it as like an advanced version of Microsoft Excel, right? They'll give you all of this data and then you can like correlate variables with one another. You could be like, does, is, is there a relationship between family income and education and all of this other stuff? And 
a lot of it, you know, some of it is useful. A lot of it is also just common sense. And the, mm. the thing, the thing that gets really, and this is what the, um, what they call themselves, they call themselves the positivists or, or the, the data, the, 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 I think that's their school of thought is that everything can be, if it can't be proved empirically, it's not true. Like that's kind of their thing. A lot of this stuff is really subjective because ultimately the person who's designing the model or the study, they're the ones that are cherry picking the variables, right? So they're, they're the ones being like, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to look at that. Oh, wait, there's no relationship between these two variables. Okay, let's try something else. And they keep doing, they keep plugging variables in until they get the answer that they were kind of sniffing for the whole time. So th that's why data science and statistics is not as ironclad as we think, because you know, if you're, if you are very few people will try and publish in a journal with failed hypothesis, like very few researchers are willing to have a hypothesis and then present data being like, we were completely wrong. Maybe there used to be a lot of that back in the day, but a lot of what's in academia right now is like, I have a hypothesis. I'm going to keep cherry picking the variables until those variables mm -hmm answer my hypothesis exactly the way that I want to. And that's where data science and statistics falls into a very dangerous rabbit hole. Again, I'm not the most qualified person to speak of it, but I know a little bit about it. <laughs> well, if it's not empirically true, then it shouldn't be science. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's, well, that's, social sciences are a lot looser than the hard sciences. I think in hard sciences, there's a lot more scrutiny because the stakes are higher. Like, I'm not going to inject this vaccination into somebody if there's like a 50% chance it's going to work. Although I'm hearing that that is starting to become, like the, 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 the belt is starting to loosen, even in the hard sciences of like. 50%. I, I mean, no, I mean, one thing that kind of scares me, man, right, is that. Before coronavirus, we all thought that scientists were like the gods of truth. We, we actually thought that they were Zeus, Athena. We thought that they were the gods of truth, right? We thought the scientist in the lab coat is the god of truth. And that, you know, and the philosopher or whatever is just like a stupid Starbucks barista peasant or something. But I think coronavirus has actually flipped everything upside down where the scientists are like, yeah, we really don't know, like we have an idea, this, this, this medication sort of kind of works in like 40% of trials or whatever. Um, let's use some ventilators. Oh, wait, those ventilators are, are too much. Oh, let's wear a mask. Oh, oh, you know, like we go, we kind of fluctuate so much. And I'm like, man, these scientists are starting to sound a lot like English majors. Like they're, they're just like interpret. It's like, they're just interpreting like, like, like a, a Charles Dickens novel with, with combating this disease. And I, I think it's kind of fallen to this point because I would have thought that with something like coronavirus, there would be a monolith answer from the scientific community of exactly how to handle it. Like monolith answer. But then I'm like scratching my head. Well, geez, why are all these different countries doing different things? You know, and it's like they're mm -hmm. all they all are forming their own scientific consensus, you know, different different um, scientific consensuses as to what exactly they should do. Well, I would say that's because most scientists are very experienced in defining the nature of something that is currently static, whereas how, whereas a virus has momentum and the way it travels through a country with its inertia is gonna be different depending on the structures in each nation. 
What is the transit system like? Mm. How often are people in their own cars as opposed to rubbing elbows? What is the social structure like? Do people follow typical European lifestyle choices where they're out in cafes and hanging out? Do they touch four times more dishes when they're at a restaurant compared to some people? Do they eat with their hands? Do they eat with utensils? So a scientist can't really define how that momentum is going to travel through. That's really where, in terms of, what is it, virology, I believe it's called? You can't answer that. And, and you know what? This is exactly a moment where we need qualitative analysis. This is where, this is exactly where you need a social scientist that goes into India or, or some of these countries to be like, okay, in India, you know, this is the norm. This is how they eat, or this is how people travel on the metro, or this is how they travel on the subway. That's where you need qualitative research telling you all the cultural norms, all the customs, all the patterns of behavior, how how close people typically stand. Like in some cultures, people get really close to you and they don't think that there's mm -hmm. anything wrong with that. They just think that that's love and, and brotherly affection. And in some other place, it's like, uh, uh, you're in my space, you know, take right. a few steps back. And it's like, you don't know any of that stuff unless you've got qualitative people down on the ground saying, hey, here's the deal, Mr. Labcoat. Like, this is how people <laughs> over here kind of, kind of reason. And I think maybe this disease has been such a giant mess because we basically exiled all of the qualitative researchers. We told all of them, you're never going to get a job. Go work in Starbucks and how, you know, put, go, 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 go work in Starbucks. Don't you, don't you dare step foot in our corporation or our university. And because we completely exiled the qualitative researchers, we don't know what the hell is going on anymore in, on the ground level. And we're just, we, we have a lot of data, but we don't actually have people to interpret that data properly. We don't have people coming up with the questions that we should be looking at, right? I think, I think a lot of qualitative data, like when someone, when, a sci when an empiricist reads qualitative work, they're like, hmm, that's a really interesting question or that's an interesting dilemma that this guy poses. Let me go ahead and, and create a model to test that out, right? And now mm -hmm. that we've kind of expunged and gotten rid of all of our qualitative researchers, these people don't even know what questions they should be asking. I agree. And I think podcasts are slowly sh giving um, qualitative thinkers uh, an arena. Yes. Yes, you know they are, and I, I think I, I think we need to kind of return re return to the form of, of of having it being a relationship in in that sense. Like somebody could listen to this podcast, right? And the podcast might end with, well, I, I really don't know what the answer is to that. But then some quanti you know, some some quantitative researcher could be listening to our podcast, being like. Well, geez, I have the I have the uh, R and Python skills to actually test that out. Let, let me go ahead and do that, and that's where we have that reciprocity. What I think comes down to it is that it's the ego. It's the ego of one per of the qualitative thinker, maybe thinking he or she is superior. Like, oh, my lived experiences are the true the true reality of life, and then probably the quantitative person is thinking, no, 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 my statistical analysis is the true reality of life. But when it's really it's really a hybrid of the two. I think you nailed it. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> that. You know, I was just agreeing and thinking about it. So let's, let's, okay. So maybe, maybe we could also, now we have the solution, right? So I think we actually solved something here in the, in the, in the first 35 minutes or so. How, how, now we can start talking about solutions, but how we kind of bring people together. So what, what could we do 
to get our qualitative friends to think more quantitatively and how can we get our quantitative friends to think more qualitatively so i think i think that then becomes the issue of like how do we get each person to kind of love each other's world a little bit more because until uh, until that happens that there's still going to be friction i don't think there's any such emotion quantitatively thinking i think that it needs to be all qualitative in order if we're talking purely empathy, if we're talking about getting love back into the conversations on an empathetic level, I don't think quant uh, quantity has anything to do with it. So I would say those that are currently in the quantitative realm need to turn a 180 to get into quality. And those in quality just need to be better at it. Maybe maybe what, what should be required is that in our educational system, right? Um, one thing that I see that's very dangerous is that we're focusing more, like especially in, 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 in the graduate level, we're focusing more on research papers. Like there's been a huge, a huge uptick in research papers being presented as being the only valuable text. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of abandoned ancient texts. We've, we've abandoned Plato. Mm -hmm. We've abandoned our, our great Western canon of thinkers. And, and, and maybe we need to also incorporate members from the Eastern canon of, of philosophers and thinkers. And I think that's the first step is that we need to bring back these ancient canons and develop a love and appreciation for them once more. Whereas I think we've actually gotten to this point where we're like, no, 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 you know, um, Plato and Aristotle, those are just old ancient white men. They don't really know anything about the world. Like, like just, just throw, that, throw that garbage aside. Here, read this academic paper that was published in 2019. There, there is the truth, right? And like, 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 and that, that's kind of like, we need to reconfigure that a little bit in our mind. I, I don't know, Alex, do you have any more ideas how we do this? Oh man, I just got frustrated. <laughs> I just got frustrated at whoever that person is. But they're only listening to research papers. Like how convoluted is that? The idea that first of all, all scientists think they're push they're pushing the the positioning of knowledge to a new tier. They always feel like they're pushing the envelope, right? Right. So that means they feel like they're on top of everything before. A house with no foundation does not stand. Sir. Right. Yeah. So how could you how could you expect your research paper to not need the, uh, the knowledge of that conversation like that's but at the same time, you have to find the hollowness of thought. And there is a lot of hollowness in terms of people's thinking, not that I'm standing on some sort of, you know, uh, hill here, you know, preaching to anyone. Uh, but the, you have to understand where we came from in order to know where we're going otherwise you don't see the trends you, you can't define when something is bent mm -hmm. because the scope of what you're looking at is so small you feel like it's going in a certain direction it's not that worrisome yet when you see where we began all of a sudden you know those lines start to look a little curvy and you start to wonder you know am <laughs> i going in the, am i tilting in the wrong direction here yes you, you, ha you have to understand that now, the other thing that comes down, what this comes down to is like our ancient texts are mostly qualitative, right? Like they didn't really have an idea of, of data analysis, but we also have to have humility. Like the data scientist needs to have humility and say, okay, this research paper was written in 2019. It's been around for a year. Yeah, it got through a peer reviewed journal or whatever, but listen, man, if, you're, if your thing has only survived for a year or two or, or, or five years, 
that doesn't mean anything. You're an in, you're like a little pea. You're an infant. Like in five years, someone could come along and totally refute your study. Even even a hundred years is not safe enough. Like it's not a hundred. It's not even safe enough to have your paper exist for a hundred years. You could. Mm-hmm. There's still plenty of time that some giant comes down the line and completely crushes everything that you believed in. Whereas. I think if we have a humility of like, listen, this piece of text has been around for 2000 years, like this qualitative experience has survived, like it survived the Middle Ages, it survived Rome, it survived all of these dynasties and all of these empires, and it's still here, it's still here in libraries, and still being actively read by some people. That, that, That needs to happen. I think everybody has to bend the knee fundamentally of like, Okay, this qualitative experience has lasted for 2000 years. Like, I'm not saying that everything in there is true. And there were limitations that constricted these people who were writing at that time. And there was things that they did not know, and they got wrong. Fair enough. Absolutely. Like, read these ancient texts with a critical mind. Um, we, we don't obviously want to start sacrificing goats and other things for no apparent reason. Like, like there, is, there, is, there, is, there is a limit where it's like, okay, that's going a little too far on the qualitative. But at the same time, you don't sacrifice goats. I mean, I, I did last week a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a reason. <laughs> but it's like it's like we just we just got to get to this point of like fundamental humility for things that have survived thousands of years, and the and the why and the wisdom, the wisdom of these lives, and the fact that the wisdom is in here. We can't just say these were just old men that that lived a long time ago and wore sandals. I think that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And I think what we're defining here is what is it called? Transhumanism, where, we, where we're beyond the actual humanity of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could just be that we're a dying breed. You know, it could be that this momentum isn't stopping and that there will be a time when emotions are completely pulled out of the brain because we put successfully chips in our heads and, you know, re-outfitted our bone structure. And now, you know, just and our wrists when we need to pay for something in Harris Teeter supermarket, like no more cards. You know, it could be that it could be that, and it could be that this is the beginning of some sort of abyss where all that previous knowledge no longer applies. It's a shifting of the rule. Yeah. Well, I think that we're kind of living in the, the hubris of the age. And, 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 and this is what I mean by this. I think every age thinks that they, they're smarter than everyone else, right? And we see this happening throughout history quite a bit. And if we look at, let's say the 19th century, we had things like eugenics and cranology and all of these defunct right. sciences, right? And these guys, if you talk to uh, a eugenicist or a cranologist or whatever in the 19th century, they'd be like, oh, well, we've, we've already looked at the skull and we figured out where emotions exist and where the brain. So every generation or every age has its own hubris where they're like, no, 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 we've we've got the truth. We have the answers. And and, and then what, what ends up happening is that a hundred years later, they just get blown out of the water, right? They just get like, boom, like gone, like cranology done, boom, your, your science is defunct, get out of here. And I think the only way to really avoid this is be like, what has lasted for thousands of years? I think the thousands of, the thousands of years test is the ultimate test. Like once you've made it past a thousand of years, you're going to be around at least for a while. Like I think that's a safe bet to make. And I that think sounds like bullshit. The what? <laughs> if you made it a thousand years, that just means you're a thousand years into the probability of an asteroid impact. But hold on now. <laughs> hold on, hold on. We, we have we have like okay. I'll give you an example of this. Like we have 
pagan texts or something that are also thousands of years old. But no one really reads them anymore because we found out that there's, there was no wisdom in there, that most of the pagan texts that we've uncovered that were thousands of years old, like just being old doesn't make you special. Like I'll agree with, like I absolutely agree with that. There's a lot of pagan texts that just are like dance on your foot like five times and 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 circle around this fire or whatever. And and we've we've kind of, we don't read that. So when I actually say thousands of years old, I don't mean just literally being thousands of years old, but oh, okay. being thousands of years old and still being referred to in, in some circle of, of, of Oh, of gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. No, that was a good point that you made like there. It's not gotcha. you're, you're making a quality, not a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not just a question <laughs> of like this is really right. old and we should just follow it. It's really old and people actually subscribe, like actually it, it's been in our syllabuses and it's been in our canon for quite some time. So I think it has to meet two, both of those pieces of criteria. And that, that thank I you for pointing that. out, that's a good distinction. Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, we, we need we need to get back to like um, appreciating those things. And I don't want to sound like a broken, a broken record on this. And I think that we we think that we're going to fundamentally and people are afraid of robots and 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 the chip being entered into us and all this other stuff and i i think that we don't have all the answers i i, I at this moment we we lack fundamental humility of being like wow there's a lot of stuff we don't know there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with this there's a lot of stuff that 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 may just not work maybe the maybe our bodies reject the stupid chip and it doesn't really really it doesn't really go anywhere you know and i always i always say that human incompetency and human hubris always gets in the way of of, of scientific advancement in, in 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 some ways it slows it down in some way because we always think like and again i was talking to my friend joe a few weeks ago do you remember in 1997 dolly we cloned the first sheep and mm -hmm. people thought, man, Dolly, the sh the first sheep is being cloned. The world is going to change. It's going to. I'm going to have. We're all going to have doppelgangers and all this other stuff. Never, you know. Here we are, like over 20 years later. No one's walking around with doppelgangers of themselves. That no we one. Know. Yeah, yeah. No, no one. No one has <laughs> like, like. All right, you're the Aaron that goes to work. I'm the Aaron that sits here and chills. And and you know, like right. we we never figured that out. And that's why I keep saying that, like, we in in science we have a lot of hubris and we have a lot of like, we figured it out. But I'm 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 just sitting here weighing like, no, it's just a it, it's just a matter of time before all of this blows in your face, and then you're stuck here at square one once again. I would actually argue the opposite. Just here to be devil's advocate because that's what we love to do. Sure, man. I would say that the hubris is actually required in order for us to forge forward into some sort of enterprise. A uh, classic example is Captain Kirk. <laughs> he didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't stop to take the time to figure it out. In fact, the person who did, Spock, would make all these wonderful quantitative choices, but they weren't qualitative choices. Mm. And if it wasn't for that sense of hubris, we wouldn't be plunging ourselves into the darkness, into the great unknown with, with so much uncertainty and risk in order to start rolling the die to figure out some things. That's funny. I, you know, I'm actually more of a Picard type per person in terms of my oh. personality. And I, I would say that the the issue is, is that I like I agree that like if I if I was like captain there on the Enterprise or whatever, 
I would have my Spock giving me some quantitative analysis, but I would still plunge forward into the unknown. I think as human beings, we have a fundamental responsibility to plunge into the unknown. Like I'm not, I'm not saying mm -hmm. that we should just halt scientific progress and plunge ourselves into a dark age. Like that would be ridiculous. Of course not. Like, like we right. need, we need to have fundamental um, bravery. I, and I wouldn't call it hubris. I call it bravery. Like we need to have fundamental bravery mm -hmm. to plunge into the unknown. But what we need to keep at the same time is humility in that, hey, we're plunging into the unknown right now. And we're kind of without a flashlight. Whereas, whereas I, think, I think that our scientists are plunging into the unknown, but they're like, oh, no, no, no. We know what's in this dark tunnel already. We already got the flashlight here. We already have the map and the GPS telling us exactly where this is going. And I'm like, no, you don't. So plunge into the unknown, take science to its utmost extreme and, and go crazy with it. But don't, don't pretend like you have all the answers when you really don't. And, and the most classic example of this is when I hear people talking about the Big Bang, right? And this just drives me up the wall. It's like, well, the Big Bang started the universe. I'm like, yes, it did. Great, fantastic, Mr. Scientist. I love it. Uh, where did the Big Bang come from? And then I, I keep going down the rabbit hole, blah, 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 you know, dark matter. We go all the way to the end of the, and then it just gets to the point of like, well, things just kind of have to happen because they, just, you know, I'm like, aha. Like if we go down this tunnel enough, right. we're, we're going to reach, we're going to reach the unknown. And don't you just sit there, you know, and pretend like you have all the answers and pretend like yeah. you're the, this model completely. Like one of the things that's also angering me is we have a lot of people creating theories of everything or theories of the universe. And I'm like, don't even kid yourself, buddy. Like you're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna do it, man. You're, you're not gonna be the one. God, you're not gonna write some math formula and God comes down and says, "You did it! You did it! Yay!" You know, like it's never, it's never going to happen. Like that's never going to happen. You're just, you're, 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 you're kidding yourself. We're in a Hitchhiker's Guide. What was it like? Eleven thousand four hundred twelve is like the answer to the universe. <laughs> like, um. It is a little ridiculous how scientists try to oversimplify complex problems by having a single line of formula. Um, in fact, what was it? Recently, we just discovered there's water on the moon. <laughs> so, you know, the, the possibilities truly are endless. And space itself is a giant question mark. They just discovered this new particle called the neutrino, which travels faster than we thought was even possible. So our entire measuring stick of how to figure out the ways to uh, map out outer space has just been dramatically dramatically changed so absolutely i mean one one thing that also made me kind of question the ironcladness of science is the whole pluto debacle right and like pluto was a planet for you know since i was a kid and, and maybe and definitely before then then we some at some point we arbitrarily decided oh there's larger masses out there pluto's no longer a planet oh now it is a planet mm -hmm. again and i'm like that is literally English lit class right there. Like you're literally <laughs> like you're, you're li you literally are debating whether a, a piece of a mass is a part of the canon of, of our nine planets and so forth. And the fact that something whether, like whether to classify something as a planet or not as a planet right there just shows the cracks and shows the holes and the arbitrariness of science that, that we can call something a planet one day and then not call it a planet the next. So if you had to define by percentage value, the quality of science, what number would you place on that? 60%, Man. 
We need it. Like I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Like like I'm not. Fifty one. Like I I, I, don't, I I don't want a scientist to listen to us right now and be like, man, these guys are so ignorant. Like I I don't want that to happen at all. We need science. We love you guys. You know this Zoom phone call that we're doing right now is all thanks to science. Like thank you, thank you, thank you, scientists for putting like warm heat into my apartment and so forth. We need you guys. We love you. And keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing the boundaries. Go, go hard. Push, push, push. Just don't, don't have hubris. Don't be arrogant. Don't think that you have more answers than you really have. That's all I'm asking is that you just be humble scientists and say, geez, we really don't know that. And then when it's time to turn it over to us, the philosophers, don't relegate us to the Starbucks. Be like, hey, Mr. Philosopher, you know, science has now reached an end here. We would like you to come mm-hmm. in and maybe you can, maybe you have some theories as to why this is happening right now. Like we don't have, we don't have answers right now as to what's going on, or we don't have an answer as to what happened exactly before the Big Bang. We would like you philosophers to come in and start hypothesizing, start coming up with some theories. And then that'll, that'll get our juices moving again. And then we can start testing some of those theories out. And, and I think that's what a fully integrated society looks like is when scientists become humble again and say, Mr. Philosopher, we're lost. Can you come up with some new hypotheses or new theories for us to test? And now, now we're really, now we're living in the next generation Star Trek universe where the philosopher and the scientists are walking down the path hand in hand. Wow. That is really a stunning image to hold uh, where a scientist also takes in a philosopher's point of view to color in where they drew the lines, that would really be something that that would lit quite literally change the world, because, in my opinion. No, because I think that the scientist is good at explaining the known. The philosopher explains the unknown or attempts to explain the unknown. And that's 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 where you need the philosopher, because the philosopher is really negotiating un, the unknown of everything. And, and the scientist is explaining things that we know or soon will know and, and, and basically finding the rules that govern us, whereas the philosopher is like, let's see where this path takes us let's see let's let's see where it is and and they're, they're working they're working together in a symbiotic relationship and I, I i think i think it takes humility and love from both parties and once we get to that level we get to that fundamental respect for one another this world will be this world will be changed on that note alex thank you so much for being on the show today thanks again for having me anytime This concludes the 66th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.